So I'm going to tell you where our church stands on Halloween. <laughs> if you mean the celebration of the occult, where we glorify uh, works of darkness, well, we're against that. If you uh, mean Halloween is the time when we uh, taunt death and the devil as defeated enemies, well, we're in favor of that. So do it that way you will. <laughs> but if you want to scare Christians, I've learned one of the best ways to do it is to strike up a conversation about evangelism. <laughs> oh, um, in the psychology department, they say it brings up cognitive dissonance in our minds. It brings up PTSD for some of us for things that we have done in the name of evangelism or have had done to us. In that name, it brings up guilt and shame and fear and um, a lot of nervousness. Uh, don't have a lot of imagination for something beautiful that comes under the heading of Christians bearing witness to what they've received from Jesus. It uh, usually is a story of something that has gone badly in our attempts. So um, what we're going to talk about tonight, I hope, will be uh, considering the subject of our witness to what God has done for us with an attitude of hope and grace rather than guilt and shame. We'll see how we do with that, but that's what I want. The whole subject of exile, which is the subject of our sermon series, is really related to the idea of God's people's concern for the people around them. You know, the Israelites were meant to be a, a magnetic force for God in the world to put his mercy on display so that people would be drawn to come in and worship him and find hope and grace from him. But they never really wanted to do that. They just kind of stayed isolated themselves. In the New Testament, when Christians were commissioned by Jesus after his resurrection to go out into the world, he said, go out to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth, kind of you know, concentrically going out. And in the book of Acts, which tells the story of the early church, you get all the way to the end of chapter 7, and you realize they've gone to Jerusalem and maybe a little bit of Judea. And then they just kind of stopped there. And so God sent a persecution on the church then and scattered everybody but the apostles out into the surrounding nations. Uh, mostly, it seems, to move Christians off of their inertia and their indifference towards uh, people around them who needed to find hope in Jesus Christ and for whom they were the instruments of that happening. And so exile, we think of ours, we don't think of it so much as a punishment, like we had to go into exile because we're doing something wrong. Now it's just the Christian experience that we live scattered in the nations of the world as expats from the kingdom of Jesus. But a big part of why he scattered us in the world is so other people can find hope in Jesus. And so we're going to think about that tonight. We're going to look at the example of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar, uh, which is an interesting place to think about that. In this chapter, and if you've seen that it's like four pages long in the bulletin, I'm not going to read that whole thing to you. You can be relieved. But um, Nebuchadnezzar, the enemy of God's people, the unbelievably narcissistic, arrogant, murderous king, seems to come to faith in Israel's God. And it looks for all the world like he becomes a Christian and converts in this chapter. And Daniel's instrumental in that in some ways. And we're going to see what we can learn both about being a witnesser and a witness E 
in their story a little bit. It's not complicated. Um, it's stuff you probably already know. One minister, I was listening to a sermon about this this week, and he said, it's not rocket science. And I laughed out loud because I thought what my friend Darren always tells me, knowing this congregation, if it was rocket science, we could do it. <laughs> and, uh, so, yeah, you know who you are. <laughs> but it's hard. It seems like it's hard to have the right attitudes. It's hard to have the right love. Hard to have the right words. And so that's what we're going to think about together. Let me pray for us, and then we'll read some excerpts from this chapter. Father, help us as we think about the subject that's fraught for many of us. Uh, but at the same time, we're eager to know because we have a lot of friends that we love, that we'd love to see find hope in you. And we'd love to be your instruments in that regard. So come help us. Give us uh, encouragement and hope. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's read the first three verses in this, which is a chapter written by Nebuchadnezzar, interestingly. It's his testimony, really. But he starts out this way. King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It has seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Then he tells the story of a dream that he's had that Daniel interprets for him that tells of his impending humiliation, that God is going to bring him low. Uh, go down to verse 18. He says, This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, that's Daniel's uh, Babylonian name, Tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation. But you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. And then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. But Belteshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you, and its interpretation for your enemies. And then down in verse 26, he says, that was, as it was, And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, I'll overgeneralize. It's an occupational hazard. But uh, Christians that I've watched and the Christian that I've been tend to have uh, a few kind of typical attitudes towards people around them who aren't Christians. Um, one approach is kind of an undercover approach uh, more like a chameleon, in which you wind up having a lot of connections and relationships with people, friendships with people who are outside the faith, but uh, you don't really share that part of your life with them. You kind of keep that under wraps. Um, and you know that even in a culture where people talk about valuing transparency and openness, that if you transparently and openly talk about being born again because of your faith in Jesus, 
that people are going to wish you weren't transparent and vulnerable and open. Right? You know? And so you lay low. And that's one approach to this. And by the way, I've stolen, as I do every week, everything I'm going to say. I just don't remember from who. Like, this is a combination probably of things I stole from Dick Kyes and Becky Pippard and Tim Keller. But I've forgotten which, so that's my disclaimer. <laughs> so there's a chameleon approach, kind of the undercover Christian. I've got a lot of good connections with people, but I just don't. I really lay low about my faith. The other approach is kind of the musk ox idea um, of someone who retreats into the holy hub, where I'm just going to hang out and have all my friendships with other Christians. And uh, I'm going to be with people who reinforce what I believe, and I'm just not going to invite the danger or dirtiness that I perceive uh, me uh, hanging out with a lot of people who have different beliefs. And I'll be safer that way, and I'll be happier that way if I have all my friends in the community. The muskox is known for when they're threatened, they, uh, they make a circle with their faces out and their huge horns out, right, to protect themselves against the threats from the outside. Neither of those is the ideal, if you didn't catch on to that already. The, uh, what we're hoping for is some kind of a embeddedness in the world, where like, we have a lot of uh, people who are, we're friends with who aren't necessarily uh, sharing our faith, but we share our whole life with them, like uh, the most important things to us, the, the way we make decisions, the things that concern us and that we care about, because of our commitment to Jesus. And as friends, we share that part of our lives uh, with other people, whether they necessarily share that faith with us or not. And somehow that's a tricky place to get, it seems like. It always feels like you're approaching it, but not getting there to be that kind of an embedded Christian. There's the, it's described really well in that New Testament reading that we had at Kerarev from 1 Peter, where he says... Uh, Always be ready to give an answer to people who ask you about your hope. Meaning, be in enough proximity and relationship with people so that they might know you have a hope and might be willing to ask you about it and not scared that you're just going to pitch them or something. So be in proximity enough so that people ask you about your hope. But when you give an answer, do it with respect and gentleness. You know, both of those things are described kind of the ideal of what we want in the way that we connect to people around us. And I think Daniel fleshes that out pretty well in the way that he managed his life around King Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, it was a different kind of relationship. They weren't just friends. There was a what we call today an asymmetrical power relationship <laughs> in their situation. Like, Nebuchadnezzar tries to kill Daniel and his friends a lot, and Daniel doesn't try to kill Nebuchadnezzar much. But other than that, you know, there's, there's a connection that they have. Uh, but let's look at their example to try to think about what does it look like for us to share our life and our faith with the people around us, to be more public about our faith. And I'll just say that um, my observation as a pastor, this congregation is better at this already than any congregation I've ever been around. And it's very encouraging to me. Um, I feel like you, know, you don't just huddle up and only be friends with each other. And uh, also feel like you tend to be pretty gracious and gentle and respectful as you speak. And so, uh, I'm not mad at you. Can <laughs> I tell you this? Let's look at uh, this from kind of two sides. One is Nebuchadnezzar's angle on this. He's both the witness E and the witness Er in this chapter. The story is about him being the witness E. You know, finding out about the true God, the God of Israel, Yahweh. 
And it's really odd because you know, Nebuchadnezzar is the last person you would expect to become a Christian, you know, to become a worshiper of the God of Israel. I mean, who, just for context, who's, who's your last person you can imagine becoming a Christian? It's a friend of yours. Um, yeah, you may have somebody right that leaps to the front of your mind. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, you would have had less hope for him probably than the person you're thinking of. Um, he conquered Israel. God let him. He didn't know that and wouldn't admit it. Took, you know, took all the uh, goods out of the temple, destroyed the temple. Totally defeated Israel's God. How's he now going to be somebody who submits to Israel's God? Uh, we've watched him. He's totally narcissistic. He's not the kind of person who asks self-reflective questions. Uh, he's not sitting around saying, I wonder, maybe I could be wrong. Could you tell me <laughs> what you see in me that's, that's uh, lacking? You know, that's just not... That's not his life. So you wouldn't expect him to convert, but it turns out that God loves him against all odds. You wouldn't, but God does. God loves him and pursues him. He has Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, Daniel's friends, in Nebuchadnezzar's life for a long time. Uh, So he's in contact, at least, with people who represent and know the God of Israel. God gives them dreams, which seems like an accommodation. You know, they're used to dreams in the ancient Near East, and uh, that's how God uh, reached out to him. It sort of reminds me of a lot of Muslim comforts you see today come through dreams of Isa that they would hear. It's Jesus, not you. And uh, so, but it's God's accommodation uh, to people. He gives dreams to Nebuchadnezzar. Um, Nebuchadnezzar tells a story. He doesn't, he doesn't repent immediately when he gets the dream and its interpretation. Um, it's like a year later when he loses his mind that he uh, finally turns his eyes toward heaven and uh, sees the God of Israel for who he is. But like he's told pretty bravely by Daniel to quit oppressing people. You know? And I don't know that many people that you could say to that are rulers somewhere, hey, you need to quit oppressing people. And they go... Man, you're right. I really am an oppressive person. I need to stop doing that right now. You know, so I don't know if that rankled with him for a, like a year as he thought about it every once in a while. Who knows what happened? But it was a pretty dramatic thing for Daniel to say to him. But he's humbled a year later, and he learns what it says in verse 25 that at the end of that, you know, you're going to go crazy. You're going to be living outside. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. Until you acknowledge that God of Israel is the true King. And uh, so, it's when He faces this tragedy in His life that He's willing to ask some questions. You know, when He loses His mind. Um, that's true for a lot of us. You know, it's in points of tragedy where we're willing to question our deeply held, long-held beliefs at times. Um, Willing, willing to at least have the conversations when we might not otherwise have been. And that's sort of why it's important to have people who are present in your life or to be present in other people's lives, you know, because you don't know when, you know, time is going to come when people are ready to talk. And so being a friend, being present, sharing your life, um, it's not so much a strategy as it is a way of living uh, that enables you to be there for your friends when tragedy hits, when they're ready to talk about big questions. Uh, but one thing you learn from Nebuchadnezzar is that nobody's beyond the pale. 
Like nobody's too lost, nobody's too far away. And the main reason we know that, if we're honest and we read our Bibles well, is that we're all Christians, those of us who are. And what the Bible says is there's not a likely convert in this room. That we're all only Christians if we are by an absolute direct miracle of God. That you are not a likely Christian any more than the person that you wonder if they ever could be. Uh, for them to convert would be a miracle, but for you to be a Christian is a miracle too. And it's that sense of uh, if there's hope that God could invade my life and give me trust in Jesus, uh, there's hope for anybody that's my friend that they can also come to faith in Jesus. And Nebuchadnezzar is kind of a, a uh, emblematic reminder of that. So after he uh, is humbled before God, he becomes a witness earth. That's what this whole chapter is. He's, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, sharing his faith. He's going public with his faith. It seemed good to me to tell the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. You know, I feel like I should tell all of you. And it's very interesting. It's what makes it look like he's, he's a convert. Because um, he starts off by saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell on the earth, peace be multiplied to you. We've seen, that, we've seen declarations from Nebuchadnezzar before. And they usually start with, I am the awesome King Nebuchadnezzar. Do what I say or I will kill you. Right? The decree with the threat is what we expect from him. And here we have the witness, which is, this happened to me. Make of it what you will. That's a very different tone from him. And he, instead of threatening us with death, he says, um, peace be multiplied to you. He's longing for us to experience shalom with God rather than uh, threatening us and coercing us to now believe what he believes. So that's impressive. And then he says, kind of at the end of, uh, end of verse 2, he's talking about the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. And that's different. Like a couple of times, uh, God has gotten Nebuchadnezzar's attention before in this book. And he's always talks like a fan, sort of like, Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, Daniel's God and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God is impressive. Uh, don't anybody say anything bad about it. But that's very different than say, let me tell you what he did for me. And that first person pronoun there is, uh, is the thing that gives me a lot of hope that Nebuchadnezzar uh, has really come into the faith. So, now he's a witness here like we're called to be. He's not a debater. Uh, he's not a salesman. He's not pitching people, which are all transactional ways of treating people that um, feel more like using people than loving people. And our calling is to love people. Um, he says, here's my story. Uh, this is what's happened to me in my life. Make of it what you will. He doesn't get super creepy with techniques. Uh, he doesn't have a survey that he's using that will lead up to a conversation that he can steer you know, in some artificial way. He's, not, he's just saying, this is what's happened to me. Make it what you will. And that's what we're called to be as witnesses. Right? Um, knowing something about the faith helps a lot as you're doing that because uh, most people have a lot of questions if they're coming into the faith. And for you to be able to give a loving and decent answer is a kind thing to do. Usually if you know your friends have certain objections to the faith, you want to learn more about those objections uh, just because you care about them. You want to understand what your friends believe and then 
uh, talk about how it contrasts with Christianity, but um, that's all done lovingly, not as a pitch. So, I don't know. I, I learned as a young Christian to give sales pitches to people that weren't Christians, and I've never had an experience with that that I'm proud of or that I thought was effective. I know God can use whatever he wants to use, but I never felt like I was treating people according to the law of love, treating them like I wanted to be treated. I felt like I was using them to assuage my guilt for not being a very good witness, you know? And um, we're not urged to do that. It's not what Nebuchadnezzar does here, and what he does is pretty beautiful, I think. So, witnesser than a, a witnessee than a witnesser. Daniel's role in this is interesting, though. Look at the events of his life around Nebuchadnezzar and see kind of how he handled it. And I think it's pretty good. He was very instrumental as God pursued Nebuchadnezzar, but he never seemed to press on the subject very much. He was pretty gentle in what he said and said as little as he could a lot of times. But he was like always coming back into the picture in Nebuchadnezzar's life and God's dealings with Nebuchadnezzar. He was present there, worked with him and for him, um, not just so he could share his faith with him, um, but helped him as best he could. It seems like he was willing to be a part of that administration as best he could. Uh, you can tell that Nebuchadnezzar trusts him and thinks Daniel loves him on some level, which is pretty amazing because he, he did threaten to kill Daniel and meant it, and he did try to kill Daniel's best friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He, he threw them in a smelting furnace. Um, but somehow, he thinks Daniel's for him. He thinks Daniel will help him, which is an impressive amount of love. Daniel realizes that God loves Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel has come to love him too. Um, because this is what Christianity does to you. It makes you look at people who are morally broken and gross and identify with them. <laughs> because you realize, oh, that's me in God's eyes. And instead of despising me, he has loved me and come to my rescue and showed me mercy. And so when I look at somebody else that's morally broken and a mess and someone I really am prone to despise, the gospel reshapes my eyes and says, oh, this is, this is how God looks at me. And if God loves these people, I can love these people. That's what gives us hope. And then Daniel's able to say hard things to Nebuchadnezzar. I can't imagine anyone else would say the things he said uh, to Nebuchadnezzar about how you need to quit oppressing kids. <laughs> you know, you're really going to say that to the king? Um, there's some question about like why couldn't the uh, why couldn't the other magicians interpret the dream? Because like it doesn't seem like a real hard dream to interpret. <laughs> there's a tree. Everyone finds shelter under that tree. Gives life to all, and then it gets cut down. I wonder if the the uh, diviners and Chaldeans knew good and well what the dream meant, but wouldn't say it, you know, because they didn't want they didn't want him to kill them. Right? But Daniel wasn't afraid to speak to him. He, but he does it so great. He says, "I wish this was about somebody else instead of you." But you need to hear this. You need to repent. You need to humble yourself and turn to the true God, the true King. So he's gentle and loving, and yet. Is willing to tell the truth. He's not afraid. Um, somehow he seems to get past the attitudes that usually trip us up, you know, like pessimism. Usually pessimistic. I don't think this person's going to become a Christian. You don't 
you don't really want to become a Christian, do you? You know, <laughs> you probably don't. I understand. You know, I feel like that's our attitude a lot of times. Is like, what good would it do anyway? You know, people are maybe a lost cause, especially this guy. I mean, Daniel's been knowing him 35 years at least when he goes crazy. He's like, at what point do you do your prayers start sounding perfunctory? Or do your work and never get another life? You know, how many times have I asked you that? You got people been on your prayer list for a while? I've got I've got several people who are twenty plus years. Don't seem any closer to Christian faith today than they did twenty plus years ago. Um, but I'm alive today. I'm gonna keep going uh, because they're no less likely than I am to be a Christian, and God is able to be merciful to them. I assume He loves them and pursues them like He has loved and pursued me. But we believe the good news of the gospel is that anybody at all uh, can be rescued by Jesus and have a relationship with God restored. And that the gospel itself is very powerful. And that people have a chance to know and hear it, that it'll do its work. And so we persevere. Uh, don't let pessimism stop you. Fear is another thing that stops us from being public with our faith and saying what we need to say think you're going to drive a wedge into your relationship if you start talking about your faith and how it works in your life. think you're going to get it, be ashamed or laughed at, um, that you may be excluded from some things, and you may. You know, that's not that uncommon. Um, but the nature of our religion is that we've been loved to the bottom by someone who knows us completely and in whose love we're completely secure, and in whose eyes we have no shame, and no guilt, and no rejection. And that's the love that we're supposed to reflect to other people, even if there's a cost involved in that. And it's feeling the love of Jesus for you that enables you to overcome your fear of uh, what it might mean in your relationships if you were more public about your faith. And it's really the kind of friend that you want and want to be. Uh, do you want to be the kind of friend who says, hey, I'm your friend, but I don't want to tell you about the way I make decisions or the deepest things I care about in my life because I'm afraid you might reject me. So I'm just not going to tell you those things. I don't want my friends to treat me that way. And I don't want to be the kind of friend that treats other people that way. To say, I, I need your, I'm too needy for your friendship for me to actually share my life with you is not loving, right? To say, this is what my life is. This is what I care about the most. This is what breaks my heart. This is what gives me really, real excitement and joy. And if you're going to withhold that from your friends, you're not much of a friend. It's what that feels like. Right? If you're just transactionally using your friends, like I'm going to, I need to blast somebody with the Christian faith so I can feel like I'm not a bad witness or something, don't do that, right? But, but if you're going to be friends with people, be friends with people. And be public about the faith that you're having Jesus with that. Um, indifference may be the biggest attitude thing we struggle with uh, with regard to being public about our faith and letting our friends in on what we believe. Is we just don't love or care very well, usually. And we see God's compassion in His pursuing love, and we think, wow, that's very, that's very different from what I usually feel towards people. This is a really hard one for me. I mean... And it causes us to kind of go one or two directions. We're, 
our indifference towards people not really loving them either will go strident. Like if you're somebody who's naturally bold and you, you don't mind just blasting people with the truth, you know, maybe you'll go strident and be bold but not gentle. You know, where the subtext of what you're saying is, I am right and you're wrong, and I love you knowing that. <laughs> you know, that you know that kind of strategy. I know it firsthand. Um, but that's that's a that's an indifference. That's a failure of love. But the other side, if you're maybe more naturally reserved or quiet, is that you just don't ever say anything, and you withdraw, um, and you care more about what you have to lose in a relationship than about actually sharing your life and hope with your friends. Um, God comes to us. Jesus comes to us. Never pulls a punch. He's extremely bold, but he's extremely gentle. And people who are um, who know their lives are a wreck run into him, and they don't find any excuses from him about their moral lives or spiritual lives. Yet they find welcome from him, and they feel loved by him. They feel hope in him, and God willing, that's what people will experience when they run into us. Because of his work in our lives. That's what, that's what we want to see happen. Right? He loves and pursues people who are his enemies. Like us. And that means that he loves and pursues your friends. Just like he has loved and pursued you. So, bold and loving at the same time. That's something that happens when you're under the influence of Jesus. Right? So, the timid are able to speak when they're afraid to. And the strident are able to love when they're not inclined to. And this is what we hope for because of what Jesus has done for us. So, it's not rocket science, right? <laughs> Maybe it just means like letting people at your work know that you go to church. That might be a big risk for some of you. It might feel like a big risk anyway. Uh, Maybe just as you're talking to your friends, talk about where your priorities come from when you're making decisions and how your faith relates to that. Yeah. Maybe just tell people what it is that weighs heavy on your heart because of your faith. Just share your life. Open your life. Go public with your faith. You have God who loves and pursues your friends like He has loved and pursued you. So be a witness. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, I pray for myself and for my friends here. Um, we feel so thankful for what you've done uh, bringing us in relationship with you and long for our friends to experience the same thing. Uh, we pray that you would deepen your work in us. Let us be secure in your love and hopeful because of the power of the gospel. Uh, and we'd love that for you to make us instrumental in the new faith of our friends that you'd make this church a portal where uh, new people are coming into your kingdom and being reconciled to you all the time. And uh, We can't make that happen, but we ask that you would do that for us and through us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.